file. Okay, so good evening. Uh, we're continuing our Romans study here at St. Anne. It's uh, Wednesday, April 14, and um, we are in Romans 11. And so let me open this with prayer. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind, with the true light of thy divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings. Implant also in us the fear of thy blessed commandments that trampling down all carnal desires, we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God, and unto thee we ascribe glory, together with thy Father, who is from everlasting, and thine all-holy good and life-creating spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Amen. Okay, so uh, let me share the screen. There it is. Starting here in Romans 11. Uh, let me get up to the top of it. Would someone be so kind as to read for us the first six verses? I can. Thank you. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars and I alone, and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Thank uh -huh. you. So chapter 11 follows closely on chapter 10, um, where Paul has been talking about um, the, the Jews and the Gentiles and criticizing and offering criticisms of the unbelieving Jews. Um, I might just remember how 10 ended, how um, the Gentiles who weren't seeking for God have found him and the Jews who were seeking haven't found him, and um, Paul has said well, it's because the Gentiles were responsive and the Jews were not to the invitation that God was giving. Um, to sum it up way too simply. And so he continues his line of thinking here, beginning, Chrysostom says, with putting essentially a hypothetical art hypothetical argument into the mouth of an objector here who's saying, well, look, based on what you've been saying in chapter 10, and you've been quoting the prophets saying, who has believed our report? And all day long, I stretched out my hands to a disobedient and gainsaying people. Well, then has God just cast away his people altogether? Are the Jews completely cast out? And Paul's purpose in this is to raise this hypothetical overstatement of what he's been saying 
so that he can actually get at the actual truth in the way that's more palatable for his audience, especially for the Jews. Um, the truth that he's aiming at here is that God has made good on his promises, even if, in fact, only a few of the Jews are saved. And so he begins by offering himself as proof. He says, well, I'm an Israelite and I'm of the seed of Abraham and the tribe of Benjamin. So, you know, I'm a Jew and I wasn't cast away. And Chrysostom says, and not just any Jew and not just any Christian, um, because, um, you know, this is a Christian to whom God has entrusted the preaching of his gospel and doctrine and mysteries throughout the world. So it's not as though a Jew just somehow barely made it in, but, you know, here's someone thoroughly a Jew and given one of the great responsibilities within Christianity. Um, and uh, Chrysostom sees the Apostle Paul putting an important clause in verse 2. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Um, and this is the greater point. God knew from the beginning who would be suited to salvation and receive the faith. <laughs> and so it's not Paul alone who's going to stand for the Jews, uh, but in fact, there will be three or five or 10,000 other Jewish believers with him at the very least that we know about because Acts records them. <coughs> Any thoughts, comments, questions, objections so far? I have a question about verse two. Yes. I'm going to guess like in other situations <clears throat> that St. John does not uh, focus on this people whom he foreknew. That doesn't, that doesn't have a um, technical understanding, but I'm guessing foreknew would refer to he knew them before he knew the Gentiles in that way, as opposed to, you know, the bugaboo of predestination. Well, the way Chrysostom seems to take foreknowledge throughout, <coughs> pardon me, got a pickle in my throat, is that God knows ahead of time who is going to respond to his invitation and to his, his treatment of them. And again, in earlier weeks, he's used the image of the horse trainer picking out which colts he's going to train for racing and seeing the indications that he knows are important for how they will respond to him that the layman will be blind to and says this is much the way god is with us he doesn't make us choose but he sees the signs in fact he has perfect knowledge ahead of time and it is, it is these whom he knows ahead of time will respond to him who are his elect and in fact throughout this chapter where uh, St. John sees the word election, he always takes that as indicating something of the good response and the worthiness of those who are responding that way, that it is qualities in them that provokes God to choose them, to elect them. Thank you. Does that help? Yeah. Uh, my, yep.
my family's help, helping me not choke here. Um, and so he goes on and says, well, there's another objection here that Paul begins to address without actually stating it. And that is, well, wait a minute. How can we somehow call Paul or even three or five or 10,000 other Jews with him the whole Jewish people when the seed of Abraham was promised to be as numberless as the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea? It says, would this not be a great deception and presenting the vital hopes and a sophistry? sophistry and so in the rest of the passage we just read paul is going to address this he begins in verse four well he doesn't begin in verse four but the main point the, the immediate point is in verse four that at the time of elijah only seven thousand were saved showing that you know even at that time it was not the whole nation that was being saved and, and following God, but only a very small remnant. And he emphasizes that, in fact, Elijah himself didn't know who these were. It was only God who knew. But St. John sees the apostle saying more here by bringing in verse 3 before verse 4. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. And... Um, this is a prof, uh, an accusation, not from uh, Paul, but from Elijah, who says, uh, his, well, Paul's point in this is to, to defend Christ and the apostles from the accusation of being deceivers while leveling an accusation against the Jews, showing that their habitual practice has been to kill the messengers of God and to reject the worship of the true God. And I got to wondering, I was thinking, this seems a lot like the way Stephen speaks, you know, the, the proto-martyr Stephen speaks before the Jewish council. He gives them a history lesson and yet takes it all to indicate how the Jews have always been killing the messengers God sent and rejecting his worship. And mm -hmm. I, so I, it made me think, oh, perhaps this was in fact a regular feature of the apostles' preaching. But certainly this is how St. John understands what Paul is saying here by introducing verse three, when verse four would have been enough simply to say it wasn't everyone, it was just 7,000. And um, so St. John then reads the introduction of the 7,000 in verse four, as Paul saying this as though it was his main point, trying to soften the blow of what he's just accused them of in verse three, but leaving that accusation implicit and so what uh, St. John reads out of this is, Paul is here demonstrating that God saves the worthy, even if he makes his promise to the whole nation. And uh, here he also looks back at some of the passages in Romans 9 to speak of only the remnant being saved. Um, and so in verse 5 there, when he speaks of um, an election of grace, he says election, again, indicates God's approval of those who are being saved, namely their worthiness, while the word grace indicates that this is God's gift and that the greater portion of it all is what God does. Comments or questions so far? I'm saving verse 6, Father Daniel, because I know you said last week that that's going to be a... Oh, I'm all over it like white on rice. <laughs> Okay, 
So verse six, um, first of all, St. John says that what the apostle Paul is doing here, as he's been doing for quite a long time now, is addressing the objection that somehow the word of God had taken no effect. And really the objection even back from Romans three, what if some of the Jews did not believe? And this point throughout is that the promise always came to the worthy and that these few though they may be are always counted as the people of God. So here in verse six, he addresses those Jews who continue to rely on the law and disparage grace. First, he says, well, they can't complain that God demanded of them something grievous and laborious because grace made salvation easy. Secondly, following the law won't save them and continuing to pursue it mars the gift of God, the grace that really would save them. Um, and so he says, you know, when, when Paul quotes, I have reserved for myself 7,000, the, the remnant saved by grace, as, as the apostle goes on to say, this shows God to be the chief contributor to their salvation, that God has reserved them, that they are saved by grace. So he says, well, okay, if they were being saved by grace, why wasn't everyone saved? And in particular, why not the Jews? And uh, he says, well, because the Jews would not have it. For grace, even though it is grace, saves the willing and not those who refuse it and turn away from it and persist in fighting against it and opposing themselves to it. Um, let me see if there's, I have any more notes on verse six. Nope, that's it. So go to it, Father. Well, I mean, this is just the verse. Well, I mean, one of the verses. <clears throat> it's by grace is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. You're just stuck in the whole dialectic or dynamic of the debate we've been bringing up about how you typically encounter Romans. Mm -hmm. Yes. So it does, if with the flow of what Chrysostom has been reading Paul, there's no way that that's what that's talking about. Right. It's not a rebuke of anyone who would try to do good or thinking doing good was important to being a Christian or even to salvation. It's a rebuke of the Jews who are still trying to pursue salvation by the law. And Paul is saying not only is the law not accomplishing that and won't ever accomplish it, but if you keep pursuing it, you're even marring grace, and grace is what will save you. So, you know, I, I guess how, in some sense, how this differs from how it's commonly put in the evangelical circles that I've lived most, most of my life in, is that this is not a universal disparagement of works, as though how we live has nothing to do with our salvation. It's a much narrower argument directed specifically at those who are trying to be saved by keeping the law and who are rejecting grace as though it were an abandonment of the law. The law meaning, you know, not every doing of good deeds, but specifically the law of the Jews. 
by which some of the Jews were seeking to be saved. Okay. Are you talking about six and seven or just six? Just six at this point. Okay. Shall we go on? Yeah. Okay. Then could I ask, would someone please read kind of a long passage from 7 through 24? Yeah, I'll do it. Thank you. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back out. Their, and bowed down their back always. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you, Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, then what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Am I going to continue to read here? Yes, through 24, through 24. <laughs> For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the, against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fell, severity. But toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you are cut out of the olive tree which is wild by nature, and are grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Thank you. So, in verse 7, St. John sums up what he's been saying. The elect, that is the worthy, the willing, obtained salvation, but the greater part of Jews sought salvation obstinately by law rather than submitting to God's grace. And then 8 through 24 in St. John's reading seems to be kind of one coherent passage. Um, and because this is a long chapter, I'm, I'm going to try to do as much summing up as I can. 
Um, and what he says is, we have to understand the apostle's purpose here, because if we don't understand his purpose and what he's up to, we will read this way in a, uh, this passage in a way that produces many incongruities. And so the way St. John understands the Apostle Paul to be arguing here is that Paul has brought great accusations against the Jews. But his goal is not to crush them, but to save them. And so at this point, he wants to protect them from despair so that they may yet come to faith and be saved. And he also wants to protect the Gentiles from inordinate elation over the grace they've come into that might provoke them to become listless and also haughty toward the Jews. And so the way he sees it is the apostle is going to launch into a section that is largely framed as a rebuke of the Gentiles. And yet, a great deal of what he's saying is really directed against the Jews, but against them in a way that's meant to draw them to faith and to salvation. And so, you know, essentially what he says is, look, the Gentiles are now in the stronger position. They're the stronger party. And so on the face of it, the apostle is going to be somewhat strong against, strong with them and, and rebuke them somewhat and warn them when his intended target is in many ways the Jews, but the Jews might be crushed by being told these things directly. So he always lets the comments toward them essentially be implicit and kind of backhanded. Um, and as much as he can, in fact, he uses words that would encourage the Jews and would seem to mitigate their situation and even honor them. And yet it's always a word, an honor that's in word only. Uh, and yet if you look at the content, you see that it just keeps highlighting the terrible position they're in but, and how easily they might leave it. So uh, starting at verse eight, uh, then it says, God has given them a spirit of stupor. And uh, Chrysostom, first of all, says when he says he gave, it means only that God allowed them to carry out their own choice. I wondered this was whether this was comparable to those verses at the end of Romans 1, where it says God gave them up to sins, not as though he made them sin, but he allowed them to continue in their, cho in their choices. And also this word, that in the New King James is translated stupor. Um, in Chrysostom's text, it reads slumber, and he understands this slumber to mean a state in which one is resistant to change, to change being very fixed on something, just as someone who's asleep is not easy to rouse up to do anything. Um, and in this case, it's particular that the, the Jews are fixed on the law in this fashion. Um, and I'm going to sort of hop, skip, and jump through some of this, but if you have thoughts or comments, please just jump in. This reads like the Gospels. <clears throat> in all of the situations, you know, those who has ear, have ears to ear, hear, you don't ear your ears, 
ears to hear, <laughs> you know, it's the same where he's quoting from Isaiah and riddles and the way in which he, especially the gospel of John is really strong on this. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I've not thought in reading this to actually connect that over to that, but I think that's a similar thing that there, <clears throat> what's going on, the grace uh, and works and all of that, those who are going to hear and are going to do something about it, uh, receive the grace and do something with the grace because God has put it in their path for them to respond to it. So mm -hmm. God has foreordained that the Gentiles are going to be brought in. So by grace, he is saving them, not because of the law. And so those who hear, uh, those who don't, don't, it's almost as if they were blinded or got, had the spirit of uh, being asleep mm -hmm. uh, instead of being completely awake. But it's, right. it's not something, it's not something, well, I mean, does Chrysostom say something about this? God has given them the spirit? Well, again, he, he takes the has given to mean he allowed them to carry out their own choice. Gotcha. Okay. Clever. And he, ta he talks about <laughs> the, yeah, <laughs> you had the right intuition there. I mean, he talks about the blinding and it's like, well, they should take a rebuke from the blinding. The Jews should take a rebuke from the blinding because others saw. It's not that no one saw. And so, again, it's their own choice. But he does uh, quote some of the very passages you talked about, about how uh, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, says, well, they didn't use their ears in those days and they didn't use their eyes. Um, it was there before them and they, they didn't use what they had to do it to respond. And it's something that was very interesting to me was in verse 10, where he talks about, let their eyes be darkened so they do not see, and especially, and bow down their back always. He does a great deal with that last line, and especially with the final word, always, because he talks about the failings of the Jews over the centuries of the Old Testament and the punishments they suffered and even exile, and yet how even the exile lasted only 70 years and then they were brought back and their kingdom restored and their govern government restored. And yet now, since the time of grace, since Christ has come, at Chrysostom's time, it has been three centuries and a bit more that the Jews have been pushed out of their home with no government, with no king, that um, this is a punishment unlike anything they ever suffered before. And it comes not from any of their many sins and abominations of the Old Testament, but from their rejection of grace. And I thought that was very interesting. And I know, I, I think I know that many of the fathers interpreted the destruction of the temple and all of that uh, very strongly. And I've occasionally wondered what they would think of the reestablishment of a nation of Israel in the 20th century. But huh. I, I've read other of, of the fathers who in that time seemed to take what had the calamities that had come upon the Jews in their own time as being a very strong statement about the gospel. Well, the, 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 the reestablishment... Uh, the establishment of Israel in the 20th century is so radically different from 
first and second temple Judaism. I mean, right. It depends on the Jewish group you're talking to. <laughs> what the the ones who know what they're talking about. <laughs> I, mean, you know, I find Noted. myself wondering whether some of the fathers would look at it and say yeah this is not even relevant it's not even the same thing or whether yeah the, you said that i guess that's what i'm getting to it seems to, I, I, that, that that would be my guess because there's no temple mm -hmm. i mean there's no temple there, there, there's no sacrifices so you know i it's it's just it's it is just a political thing. It is not it's it's, it's it is not a, a uh, uh it's, it's not a real it's not a religious thing. Mm -hmm. um, of course, I guess a lot of that has to do with what your understanding is of what. I'm sorry. I guess a lot of that has to do with what your understanding is of what the 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 the, uh, the nation of uh, Israel and and the nation of Judah was, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and and if you th be, 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 uh, back at the time of first and second temple, you know, so mm -hmm. okay. So uh, Saint John. Here talks about um, a change in order. He talks about this a couple of places that God really intended, first of all, for the Gentiles to be saved, but the Gentiles turned to corruption. So God chose the Jews. And yet the Jews also turned away. And so here he's putting the Gentiles first again. Um, he mentions that a couple of places. Um, verses 12 and 15 and 17, we see here the apostle using words of consolation for the Jews, but it's only words. It says, you know, their fall, fall brought riches to the world. What, were their, what, were, what will their fullness bring? The Jews were the natural branches. The Gentiles, a wild olive. And all of this points out the greatness of the Jews' fall. They brought riches to others, but remain impoverished themselves. They may be the true branches but they're cast aside and their place has been given to their inferiors and indeed the lower they count the gentiles to be the greater is the jews humiliation for being displaced by them verse 16 um the first fruit comment david oh no i was just going to say when paul finds the metaphor he likes boy he just won't let it go he just he, <laughs> he, he just you know yeah, and you see some of this in verse 16, uh, St. John reads these words, first fruit and root, as referring to Abraham and the patriarchs and the prophets, and continues on. So the lump and the branches may be holy, but the Jews are no longer among them. Indeed, the Jews are cut off from Abraham, while the Gentiles are now partakers of the root and fatness. So all the fullness of what the Jews had once enjoyed. And so the Gentiles have become the children of Abraham, while the Jews are cut off, and yet... Paul phrases all of this as a rebuke to the pride of the Gentiles, trying to protect the Jews from despair and entice them to return. Um, verse 20 gets at the crux of the matter. It's faith, right? Because of unbelief, they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Um, 
And yet, this is not to be a faith that leads to complacency, um, but one that that produces a, li a life worthy of the gift, which he sees in the, the exhortation not to be haughty, but to fear. And mm -hmm. further down, where he, he talks about continuing in his goodness, in God's goodness. Um, because if we don't continue in the grace that God's given us, we'll suffer an even greater judgment than what we would have otherwise. Finally, down in verse 23, um, Chrysostom says, first of all, it was not God that cut them off, but they have broken themselves off. Um, and there's a footnote of, of in the, from the translator about this, talking about the, the meaning of the use of the passive in certain times and places. Um, but evidently, that this is not indicating that God cut them off at all, but uh, maybe this is verse 19, branches were broken off, um, but that they've broken themselves off. And in verse 23, then, uh, you know, if they don't continue in unbelief, they'll be grafted back in. He says, so neither the Gentiles good nor the Jews evil is immutable. The Jews should not faint at hearing of God's severity, nor the Gentiles be confident in hearing of God's goodness. God cut the Jew off that he might not, that he might long to come back. God showed goodness to the Gentile that he might continue in, not faith, but goodness, doing deeds worthy of God's love toward man. So Paul encourages the Jews to faith by the example of the Gentiles to regain the place that they've lost to the Gentiles. And he encourages the Gentiles to fear by example of what happened to the unbelieving Jews. Thus he's guarding the Jews against despair and the Gentiles against elation. Any thoughts before we move on just a little more? Okay, so then in verse 24, the end of the passage we read, Paul strengthens his point. He said, if faith accomplished what is contrary to nature, that is the Gentiles becoming children of Abraham, how much more will it accomplish what is according to nature, that is the Jews returning to Abraham? And yet here St. John says that these phrases, according to nature and contrary to nature, have to be understood not as meaning nature in the strict sense, but merely to what is probable and improbable, because goodness and badness are never by nature, but always by temper and determination. So we can't take nature in the same strong sense that we take it many other places in the book of Romans. So anyway, that... Those, those are the notes I put together on this long passage, 7 through 24. Let me throw the floor open for comments and questions and criticisms and whatever else. I'm just going to end up repeating myself, so I'm just not going to repeat myself. Ah, <laughs> uh, go ahead. It just flows so much better. It all holds together. Right. That's all. <laughs> oh, you talk about Chrysostom's, Chrysostom's, yeah, Chrysostom's interpretation does. makes so much more sense. Yeah, it holds it together. And like the flow of the whole book holds together. The, yeah. the way he's taught. And then it's like, 
instead of random abstract doctrine, some verses I don't understand how they relate to it, random abstract doctrine versus I don't understand how it relates to and then you know that's like the worst kind of cherry picking but <laughs> it makes sense this is grace and works and foreknowledge and whom he's called the election of grace has to do with the inclusion of the gentiles mm-hmm. it's not an abstract discussion about illumination from the holy spirit in order to be saved and someone else who doesn't get it and is damned mm-hmm. you know I I I I, I think our experience in reading this is so much different because I don't have that ev- evangelical Pentecostal background. No, oh, good for you. I don't have an evangelical Pentecostal background either. <laughs> oh, you don't? No. Church of Christ is not evangelical or uh, Pentecostal. What is it? Uh, it flows more out of a reformed background. Okay. Coming from, I mean, Campbell. We were called Campbellites, right? That's the derogatory term. Oh, Campbell. Uh, yeah, my yeah. buddy Campbell. Okay. Yeah. You were disciples. Yeah. Church of, but, Church of Christ is the right wing branch of the restoration movement. That's right. They're the, they're the lost tribe of the Christian church. Yeah, I, I remember now. I, I'm yeah, sorry. There you go. Okay. No, 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 no. But no, but really, honestly, I didn't. We were always shadow boxing with Calvinists, but we weren't Calvinists, but we I, were controlled by the paradigm. <laughs> yeah, I, I am. I, I, I was at one time disciples of Christ, but I did not engage in Bible study in any depth with disciples of Christ. I engaged in Bible study in depth, first of all, as an Episcopalian, which came later, and then as a Roman Catholic. So. I, I, I guess this has always flowed. Uh, you understand what I'm saying? Uh, uh, uh. Yeah. Anyhow, 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 those traditions. Are, I, I, I'm just saying those traditions are so different. They're, they're. Yep. Uh, oh, I've read Roman Catholic commentaries, and they don't have Chrysostom's Christmas. Uh, and I'm not saying I'm an authority on this. Don't get me wrong about that. I'm sure <laughs> yeah. somebody somewhere, I mean, N.T. Wright in some ways sees some of this, but I haven't gone verse by verse with, you know, N.T. Wright on Romans or something. But right. um, the Neither Romans are still yeah. so much caught up in, by Romans, I mean Roman Catholics. <laughs> um, <laughs> they're still so caught up in Reformation debates that they can't, and, and the way New Testament studies have been dominated in modern discourse by Lutheran and Calvinist interpretation, um, right. they're always late. They're, they're not as late to the biblical studies party as Orthodox are now, <laughs> uh, which I think ends up being a benefit in the long run because of so much of New Testament scholarship presumes Reformation ideals and approaches it in that way um but uh yeah that's it i've said what i missed but correct me (laughs) if i'm wrong with chrysostom's commentary on romans is found online at new advent is it not yeah which is a catholic website right right but that that's just because they have the fathers on there I'm just talking about the way that the discourse of like, 
Like, no, uh, no, but, 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 no, but yeah, you're, you're missing my point, I think. You're, you're, okay. So what's the point? If I, I don't, then I'm still missing it. My point is Chrysostom's not as foreign to me because of my Catholic background. Gotcha. gotcha. Okay. Even though it wasn't, even though it was not given to me as Chrysostom per se, do you understand what I'm saying? When there was a discussion of Romans, the discussion of Romans was very similar to what we're hearing from Chrysostom. Does that Good. make any sense? Yeah, now I, now I got it. Yeah, okay. It's just, I'm that. just saying, no, nobody said, well, John Chrysostom says. They just said, the church says. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and they got it from, from, from John Chrysostom. Okay. So it doesn't seem that foreign to me or that. Uh, uh, I'm still glad to be doing it. It's still beneficial because I haven't looked at it in 20 years. <laughs> well, and my background was evangelical. And I think, you know, as an evangelical, you're sort of committed to taking the book of Romans as sort of a doctrinal tome. And you're going to go looking for, you know, sort of theological principles. And mm -hmm. I don't think you can possibly read it rightly if you start that way. Um, you know, and to see so much that St. John is a pastor. And he reads and interprets this pastorally for the benefit of his own congregation, his own parish. But also... He sees Paul as a pastor writing pastorally. Yes. Yes. And, I mean, we said all this before, but, you know, he's always looking at who who is his audience? What does his audience need to get out of this? How is he accomplishing that by the words that he uses? Um, and then, of course, he reads it from within the tradition that told him what it ought to be saying. Right. But I, I think what you're saying is is that is that is that Paul's letter to the Romans is not a doctoral dissertation right. attempting to prove points of theology. It is in fact a pastoral letter right. trying to resolve this problem about yeah. Gentiles and Jews and salvation, and that the background that you're familiar with, the evangelical background, took it as more of a doctoral dissertation kind of thing. Am I am I right? That's right. And, and Father, is that true of the Reformed tradition that you were talking about too? That it's more of a that that it's more taken of a. a, a... Yeah, evangelicals are just flowing downhill from. Re the broader reformation stuff right i know you yeah. know that so reformed readings and lutheran readings are pretty much in some ways many protestants don't, can't tell the difference between them although lutherans vociferously detest calvinists but that's a whole nother conversation right um but the ways in which luther discovered the doctrine of justification and the ways in which um Reformed thought began to think about how the Holy Spirit 
awakens and converts and all that kind of jazz. Uh, they went to Romans and they read these passages and they use them for debates and things that have are very far away from the context of what Paul is talking about. And they just, they live, it seems to me they don't actually get the drift of what Paul was the main backdrop of um, Gentile and uh, Jew. And the, they, they get that, you know, the grafting, they get the obvious points, but they don't really see how that maps on throughout the whole thing. Does that make sense? Yeah. They make a huge deal. Jacob Nesau, that's like one of the passages you go to. See, God elects people individually. Uh -huh. And it's only through his his uh, rejuvenation or renewal of their heart by the power of the Holy Spirit that they are able to call on God. So, so you're saying that the doctrine of the elect is derived from Romans? Yeah, that's one of the main passages they go to, yeah. Wow. If you're going to sit down and have a debate about it, yeah, that's one of the, right, Reed? I mean, that's one of the common places. You go there. Yeah, Romans uh, 9. Yeah. Okay, okay. Okay. Different world. <laughs> okay. And I also I forget the other passage. Yeah, well, What's I apologize for taking time with this. I apologize for taking time with this. I, I, I don't want to waste time with it, but it, but it's enormously helpful to me because sometimes I have felt like I am lost in this discussion. <laughs> and I think I understand now. I think I felt like I was lost in this discussion because the, the rest of you have been discussing issues that I, I am not intimately familiar with. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand what I'm saying. Arguing with people about this stuff, <laughs> and I'm going, "What's there to argue about?" It it says it, it says. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, David. So for, right? for, so for that, I so so for that, I apologize. So for that, I apologize. I, 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 oh, you I'm don't sorry. need to. Yeah, it's uh, always confusing when someone's trying to correct misunderstandings that you don't have. Exactly. Thank you very much, Reed. That's exactly it. I've been hearing the correction of misunderstandings, and I'm going, I don't understand what the misunderstanding is. I... <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay, look, the sky is blue. You got it? Blue. Yeah, yeah. That's well, what he said. Get that. That's what he said. Okay, I apologize. I, I, no, I, no, it's good that you asked. I'm That's sure you're not the only one who listens to this and it would it is in the same spot. Maybe they get this far, hanging in with us. But yeah. well, and it you know coming from the background I did come from, it was helpful as I increasingly saw how this question of the Jews and the Gentiles and the law was a dominant concern in a great deal of the New Testament. Certainly, we see it plenty in Acts, but in a lot of the the epistles as well. Uh huh. And um, then I think uh, I may have heard uh, Jeannie Constantinou as she was talking about uh, New Testament and Romans, talking about how the the church in Rome had a bit of an unusual development, and that evidently there were folks in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost from Rome who brought this back to Rome, and then at some point, was it Claudius 
ordered all the Jews out of Rome. And so then you had only the Gentiles left in the church there with the Jews gone. And then later the Jews came back. And so, you know, the Gentiles, I suppose, had had more of a chance to kind of direct the church and develop it on their own. And then the Jews come back and, you know, there was this potential for strife and misunderstanding. And perhaps this is the very thing the Apostle Paul is, is why he's writing so much about this. I may be saying more than she did, but I'm, I'm working from memory. That's a very inter that's very interesting. I I just noticed uh, last night that in her uh, Monday night search the scriptures live, she's been doing Romans, and I think she's about to catch up with us. <laughs> I haven't actually listened to any of it, so uh, I, I would sort of like to go back and listen to it now. But in any case, we should try to finish up here because I'd like yeah. to get us done by 930. Um, let's see, at 25, can I inch that down? Almost. Would someone be so kind as to read from 25 through the end? I'll do it. Thank you, Father. 25, does 35 end it? Now there's one more. I'll try to scroll at a suitable okay. time. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them to all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. O oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. So, um, St. John says here in verse 25, the word mystery means that which is unknown and unutterable and has much of wonder and the unexpected about it. He focuses on the word in verse 25 of the two words, uh, sorry, yeah, yeah, in part, blindness in part. Again, this is yet another you know, pastoral jab at the Jews saying the remnant, the few have believed and are being saved this shows that the Jews are still welcome to believe and be saved. That blindness, they don't have to remain in their blindness. Uh, quoting uh, prophets in verse 26 and 27, St. John sees that verse 27 attaches verse 26 to the concept of salvation, uh, namely that salvation is not coming from circumcision or offering sacrifices, but from when the uh, the people receive forgiveness of sins. 
um, verses 28 through, well, 28 and 29, where it says, concerning the gospel, they are enemies. St. John takes this as simply being the hostility of the Jews toward the gospel and those who believe in it. He says, this hostility is bringing them punishment. On the other hand, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, but this isn't doing them any good unless they respond with faith. Um, so again, these things that sort of look like parallel and balancing, generally the, both sides of it speak against the Jews to call them to repentance and to faith. So again, um, yeah, so I just said that, okay. Uh, looking at verses 30 through 32, he reads this, um, for as you were once disobedient to God, um, as being directed at the Gentiles, uh, they were disobedient. And so the Jews became the chosen, the elect of God. And yet now they've obtained mercy through their disobedience. Um, and so, you know, this is the same thing. The Jews, the, the Gentiles were to be saved first, and yet they were disobedient, and so God chose the Jews. And yet now the Jews who were, were put first have disobeyed, and now the Gentiles are put first once again, because through their disobedience, the Jews' disobedience, the Gentiles were invited to faith. And so... Uh, St. John sums it up, God shows each to be disobedient, that each may be saved by the resistance, the failings of the other. And so finally, St. John sees the Apostle Paul just overwhelmed with God's wisdom and his dispensation crying aloud in a way that certainly indicates that it will all come to pass. What he's done is so past understanding we can't even search into them only he knows it all his wisdom comes from no one and nowhere but himself the fountain of all good things he is rich and needs not to receive from another he is wise and needs no counselor god has devised all of this and so he caps the whole beginning section of his letter chapter 12 of course we change directions So, again, I'll throw open the floor for any comments, questions, remarks anyone would like to make. Again, I'm going to say I'm not going to repeat myself. <laughs> I'm going to let you go this time. I'm going to let you go this time, Father. <laughs> there's just so many, just all of 20, 29 to 32. Double predestination. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what double predestination is, David? I don't like kind of Erica deal. knows. Erica was a Presbyterian. Yes, I do know double pre I do know what double predestination is. I do know what double predestination is. But I just don't <laughs> So, 
Erica was almost going to say something. <laughs> no. Well. Okay. Well, it has hit nine thirty. So maybe we. I was going to say we don't have to explain what double predestination is, just so we can explain <laughs> it some misunderstanding and correct it again, do we? I mean, can we just let it go? <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm going to turn it. I'm predestined to turn into a pumpkin soon. So. Yeah. All right. <laughs> okay. Lord so, have mercy. Um. I'm just catching up on the chat. Okay, so um, <laughs> you didn't miss anything. <laughs> thank you all so much. It's been good to see you and meet with you and look at this together. Thank yes, you, thank Reed. You. Uh, you Father, are we recording? Uh, yeah, I'll go ahead and stop it here. <laughs>